This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer Bring Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner. This is episode 243, and we're in Atascadero, California. And uh, Ryan and Jackie Fields from Wild Fields Brewhouse are with me on this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan and Jackie. Thanks for having us. We're stoked to be here. So excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you all. Uh, you know, I, I was out here last summer actually filming some classes with the Firestone Walker folks, and I thought, you know, it would be great to go podcast with uh, with you all, but I don't know that anyone, like our broader brewing audience would have been as familiar. I've been following <laughs> your work, Ryan, from the Beachwood Blendery days and some beers that had scored incredibly highly with our blind panel, beers that ended up uh, being beers of the year for craft beer and brewing. And so when you decided to leave Beachwood, and get out here and open up your own brewery. I was excited to see what happened there, I, uh, but I wasn't sure the broader audience would have been with us then. And then this year, we're in Minneapolis for the Craft Brewers Conference and uh, World Beer Cup, and you won four, <laughs> an unprecedented four gold medals, something that had never been done before in the World Beer Cup. Um, by a craft brewery. By a craft brewery. Big Beer has done it, and that's okay. But craft beer, you know, it's just, it changes the game. It means we're we're just as good. There you go. And you did it with some interesting styles, including two different brown ales. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about brown ale. I don't know that we've ever talked about brown ale here on the podcast, but we will definitely talk about some brown ale today. No, we're definitely stoked that we won. It definitely has been helping us get the word out. I mean, we definitely have like a tight following of people that we met in the beer industry and people that have followed us, but... We're definitely still up and coming and trying to make a name for ourselves and make wild fields a thing. So it's, it's, it's huge for us just to be able to have that recognition. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, I can't wait to talk, like I said, about brown ale, about Scottish ale. We can talk a little bit about uh, Mexican lager because that's another one that you've won for. Uh, we definitely want to talk about uh, wild and sour beer because I think some of the work that you've done in that is some of the best that we've ever tasted in, in the United States. Absolutely phenomenal, beautiful beers, and I, I'm not that's I'm not overhyping or overstating that. I I do legitimately believe that. Um, anyway, we'll talk about all of those things. But first, for nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. GD stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real-world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG, exclusive distributors of RAR Malting Company. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers from the 19th century through today's craft beer pioneers. Whether you're creating classic lagers, resin-clouded hazies, or barrel-aged behemoths, inspired malts like raw North Star Pills, malted oats, and more are here to make your brewing dreams a reality. Get in touch today at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. And we are here in the brewery, and there's some brewery sounds in the background, but you know... 
I love hearing brewery sounds these days because mm-hmm. after uh, so many, so much time in COVID where we had to do these remotely, it feels really good to be back in the brewery. We are in real life right now. <laughs> for sure. Not- for sure. Uh, and it's been a fantastic weekend for me coming off of the Firestone Walker Invitational, a phenomenal event, one of my, one of my very favorite beer festivals in the entire world, um, and a great excuse for me to come to the central, central coast of California every year. Um, and I had a wonderful afternoon drinking some wine with some brewer friends, and uh, yeah, and here we are right now. Um, talk to me about uh, Wild Fields and the origin of that, but then, you know, and as a product of both of your collective craft beer experiences both of you together have worked extensively in craft beer and uh you know and now this is the opportunity to to build your own brewery and not just brewery but also tap room and family entertainment center uh it's an incredibly fun brewery tap room where uh you know with big tables that's geared towards families and kids and not a uh rarefied or pretentious beer experience um and the beers you make are accessible and, and broad and, and open to all this. So talk to me about this kind of history, those arcs that you all have taken through craft beer to end up right here. Yeah, well, I think we we always kind of knew we wanted to start our own brewery. I mean, a lot of people dream about it. Um, I don't think that we really got serious about it till we met and knew that we were going to be together forever. And we just kind of, we both had such a passion for beer and we both had such like different skill sets in that field and had just started networking so much it just seemed like the kind of natural progression and i would say in a nutshell i mean we took a lot of inspiration from our time working at pizza port and we just thought it was such a great model and thought it would like that kind of vibe would fit so well up here because it's such atascadero is such a family oriented town and there's just it's hard when you have kids i mean we have two kids and it's hard when you have kids to go out and find a place where you can have a good time, bring your kids, and not have to worry about them, and have it be fun for everyone. So, you all are it. answering the kids and brewery question with a very clear uh, statement of yes that uh, this place is very specifically designed for for families uh, to be friendly for them. We went to New Zealand with our two year old daughter, and it was the best experience. Like, if if the U.S. and pizza were out nearly confirmed that kind of we love this vibe traveling with a child and you walk into pubs and they just have huge like secret gardens for children attached to them and swings and things and you're just like this yes yes this is exactly what we think is important because I don't care if you're in my pub to drink or not but everyone should feel like this is normal and this is great and this is wonderful and and Kids beer, shouldn't be excluded from yeah. those environments. Breweries used to be these cultural centers of a city, you know, a place where everyone could meet. And like historically, we just felt like that's what it used to be. And I think America somewhere, maybe somewhere lost mm-hmm. its way and treats alcohol like the thing you hide in the corners sure, and sure. like don't tell your kids about it. And it's like we we uh, we want to teach our kids how to responsibly drink and also have a place where we can drink and hang out with them. Yeah. <laughs> so. Sure. Sure. So pizza port, you both worked at pizza port. Yes. Yeah. So I was the, I guess we'll just start from the beginning. I got my start at lost port brewing, lost Abbey right out of college. Basically actually before I actually graduated college, I got a job on the bottling line, just part time 
uh, kind of just right place at the right time. I walked in one night. I was late because my MapQuest directions that I printed out weren't doing me justice, <laughs> I guess. And uh, I walked in late and just kind of started. It was Tommy and some of the bartenders and they were drinking. And I I walked in and just started drinking with them to buy a bottle of beer. And at one point, one of the bartenders was like, you're cute. You should work here. And Tommy's like, you know, we can use another bottling line person. I was like... I sent him my resume the next day and started working on the bottling line. And the rest is kind of history, I guess. It was just the right, one of those right place at the right time moments. I uh, didn't and really. And the right guy. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really want to do what I was studying in, in college. And I was missing passion in my life. And I was like, I think I'm going to find a new direction anyway. So this was kind of just one of those things where I give it a try. And I saw a lot of potential in the industry. And it was a great growing brewery at the time. Sure. Uh, so after a year or so of working really hard, I was the lead brewer doing a lot of barrel work, like just learning as much as I could from Tommy about Belgian sour beer and also making West Coast IPA all the time, Wipeout and right. Mongo. Um, so it was just a cool place to like really like learn a lot of information and also meet a lot of people. I got to like be part of this like tight knit community and like be introduced to all these people and start networking. Um, actually, yeah. So I met the people at Beachwood back then, actually when she was working at Beachwood and, uh, we met right at the end of my lost Abbey stint, um, just through mutual friend actually that I was living with and also brewing with. And, uh, right after that, a job at Pizza Port opened up and it was kind of just, I mean, who would, wouldn't want to be a head brewer at a Pizza Port? It's kind of like the ultimate job, especially when you're working your way up through the industry. Sure, so sure. luckily there wasn't a, like it was Port Brewing, Lost Abbey is a sister company of Pizza Port. So it was kind of a shoe in and there wasn't a lot of people vying for that position. So I got that and, uh, yeah, I brewed at Pizza Port San Clemente for three years. We moved in together and lived in San Clemente and, uh, after that, uh, I heard rumor that Beachwood was starting a sour facility, and I had missed making Belgian sour beer since I got so much experience at Lost Abbey. Sure. And was already kind of thinking about what the next step was going to be. Didn't know if I should like ask Gabe and Julian or like how that worked. And I think I ran into Gabe at a, a CBC and just kind of like brought it up. And he's like, wait, you're going to like think about leaving Pete's for? Like, I didn't want to like poach you. And I was like, well, if you need, if you want someone to like help you do this, like I told you down and he's like, yeah, like let's do it. So they asked me to jump on board and help spearhead the Beachwood Blendery program, which was uh, just an awesome experience to be able to do that. But at the beginning we had knew that we were about to have our first child and wanted to land on the central coast to raise our kids and do the family thing up here. So I told him from the beginning, like, I'll give you five years. That's as long as we can live in L.A. County. And we kind of worked out a deal where uh, I'd still be part of the company after I left. And we knew that was the timeline. And it was a great, awesome experience getting to do that. But we we knew we wanted to land up here. So, Jackie, what was your entry into craft beer? <laughs> um, I got a phone call from a dishwasher I had worked with at a Mexican restaurant who was like, hey, do you need a job? And I had tried to become a professional working adult and gotten a job in like a corporate office and it pays crap for dollars. And I was like, yeah, I could really use a second job. Okay. And he's like, yeah, you should come interview at the spot. And it was in the same town I lived in. And 
I had my bike over and I interviewed with Gabe Gordon. If anyone's met Gabe, he's an extremely particular human being. Um, and I literally interviewed with him for like five minutes. And I pretty much said I have OCD and I've been in the service industry a long time and I love it. I just love humans. And he was like, okay, can you show up tomorrow? Like, <laughs> here's your schedule. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I feel like I told you nothing about me, but let's do this. And I came in for my first night and we had eight rotating taps This of is craft Beachwood beer. Seal Beach, by the way. Yeah, Beachwood before there was a brewing. Beachwood barbecue. I got to learn about beer and I still remember my first night. Like, I was like, okay, bye. And he's like, oh, well, do you want a beer? And I was like, I'm 20. And he was just like, <laughs> like eyeballs got really big. Like, who did I just hire? Shit. You know, I, I do craft beer. Like, you can't even try it. And, um, you know, it was like, he exposed me to the style guidelines. And for a 20 year old, I had this, this comprehensive package I could refer to, right? And I had a good idea of what these things were. And people would ask me for a brown ale or an IPA or whatever. And I could kind of fake my way through it. And then I would serve it to them and be like, what do you think? And then I would take their feedback and I would use it for other customers. And it was just this really cool process of learning how people digest things and how they explain them and how they went with or without the guidelines. And it was a really cool way, I think, to get into the beer industry and um, watch them grow. And it paid my way through college. And I'm so lucky. And I ended up at UC Irvine. Um, they have an amazing beer bar there, the Ant Hill Pub. And I was just like so stoked that I got to commute and do college at a with a craft beer bar on my campus and started carrying Ryan's beer on campus um, from Pizza Port. And that was really fun. And went into nonprofit for a couple of years when I graduated. But I would get really jealous of Ryan and all the people he got to see and talk to and meet every day. And I was like, gosh, darn it, Ryan, I hate you. Like, you're still in it and I'm not and I want to come back. And so it worked out when... I was a nonprofit and we had our daughter and I was like, I'm just really not happy. Like I want more. I want, I want to see all the people that we love and our family. And luckily Ryan's sweet and supports me in that. And so I just quit my job from big brothers, big sisters in Orange County and went back to bartending and uh, the Orange County Brewers Guild opened up a position for executive director. And luckily I got to apply for that. And here we are. Fantastic. Well, let's, uh, pivot and start talking about some of these beers that you all are making right now. But before we do that, supply chain challenges are here to stay for a while. So why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more of concentrate from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes from various carriers and can stay up to date on the status of your shipment. To get started on a freight quote for craft concentrates today, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, as craft beer's most trusted point of sale system arrived as the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts, and no monthly fees, Arrived provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. Remember, there is no I in Arrived. And you all use Arrived out there, don't you? We, we do. do. Yeah. 
We love Arrived. Perfect. Perfect. Well, let's talk about this. So, uh, you know, you mentioned style and style guidelines. This is something that you all pay a lot of attention to that, uh, <laughs> Um, you know, you have a, a healthy approach to competition, like to win, like to play the game of beer competitions. Obviously, you've got a great strategy around that. Um, we'll talk more about some of that because I think it's an interesting way. We'll, we'll leave that to later on. We'll make folks uh, uh, keep listening to the brewing conversation <laughs> before we circle back to uh, some of the strategic approach that you take to entering competitions, which has obviously and clearly worked for you. Um, but let's talk about some of these beers. You, uh, you know, some of the beers you are now known for after winning. Uh, and when I say this, brown ale is this thing for you. You won a GABF gold medal for it. You won a World Beer Cup you know, gold medal for it. Uh, you, you won like a California, California Craft Brewers Cup. Right, gold right. Also, you know, and so uh, you have carved out now coming out of a, yeah, someone who has brewed sour beer for a long time um, and also West Coast IPA. Uh, <laughs> talk to me about this kind of uh, focus on brown ale and uh, what led you to becoming so competitive in that niche of craft beer. Yeah, that's definitely a good question and something that maybe I'm still trying to wrap my brain around. It wasn't like a weird. You got to be like, careful what you win for because then yeah. people are going to expect you to keep I making that. I am stoked yeah. that we're winning medals for brown ale because we're definitely all about classic styles. We're all about beer with balance and like we're all about homebrewers too. Like we we do a homebrew competition here and the winner gets to make their award winning uh, recipe on our system. And this year we're actually going to package them into cans. So like. Homebrewers always love brown ale because it's just the, one of those traditional styles. It's great to make on a homebrew system, and like, it's not something you find a lot too. It's like right. we're we're trying to keep some of these traditions alive and make sure we don't get too lost down the rabbit hole of new and trendy and experimental. I mean, we love that too, but like, we want to make sure we're still respecting the past. And um, yeah, so how did how did we start winning so many medals for brown ale well talk to me about the creative process first you know as you start thinking about it you know you're an experienced brewer you've you've been doing this for a number of different ways but what like where where do you pull from as you start to think about and design not just one but two like english style and american style yeah. brown ales how you're going to build some you know some differentiation there but how you're also going to take that style that everyone has expectations around and build something that is, you know, uh, uniquely compelling through it. Yeah. So we actually brewed the Three Bridges American Brown Ale first. That was a beer we made pretty soon after we opened. And I just knew I wanted to have some dark malty beers on. I wanted to kind of test the waters of a Tascadero in this area and see how they reacted to that. And I thought it was kind of, it was winter, I think. So I'm like, I want to make a pretty heavy duty brown, something that like is malty. It's got some chocolatey notes, a little bit of bitterness. So I went with the American style brown for that. And it went over really well. And uh, at that point, there wasn't really a competition at all on hold at that point because we opened three months before the pandemic hit. So we're just like scrounging <laughs> great, to survive. Timing, I wasn't yeah. really thinking a lot about competition at that moment. I was, we were just in survival mode. So uh, as time went on, uh, we made our other brown ale, the Pine Mountain Monolith, which is the one that we won for English style brown. And that was during the summer. And I'm like, okay, we made this kind of winter brown. Um, I just, I want to make something that's going to be good for summer. And uh, the mon a monolith had just popped up on top of a mountain that's actually walking distance from our brewery. And it was one of the first five of these like steel 
alien right, monolith right. thing. And so we actually got some, uh, Tascadero got some global recognition for that. We were in the Guardian and there's, there's a little bit of buzz about it. So we're like, let's, let's kind of use this buzz and like make a cool beer. And uh, we had already decided that brown ales were going to be all kind of like uh, trail themed beers for us, uh, like local spots around town. So we, we called it Pine Mountain Monolith. And it was summer, so I'm like, let's make it a little lighter. Let's not go as heavy on the chocolate. Let's not go as heavy on the bitterness. Let's make it like just super drinkable, something that you can just like really approachable. Um, I'd say all our beers are definitely on the approachable balance side, but like even more so. So we made the Pine Mountain Monolith. It was a huge hit. It had it just uh, I wasn't like necessarily planning on it being like a, an English style brown. I was just like, I just want to make a brown that is more on the approachable side and it had a lot of like nutty notes to it and it wasn't necessarily overly estery and it just had a, a lot of flavor but drinkability and that was one that I kind of just threw in GABF kind of last minute and it wasn't really like one I was banking on honestly and when it won I was like because we didn't honestly we did not use English style yeast we used uh, California ale yeast for that and it wasn't super Englishy, I would say, but it did have the like perfect like nuttiness, like it almost like smell like hazelnuts on it. Um, so it was one of those that I just I just I tossed in there. I, I just knew it was a great drinking beer, and I was like, okay, let's see if the judges think this is appropriate for the category. And it has proven that that sure. is what they're looking for. So that was one that I didn't necessarily go in banking on, but was one that definitely has stuck. And I was like, okay, that this is this is working for us. Um, so after that one world beer cup comes around and I'm like, well, we nailed, we keep nailing this brown ale. Maybe I'll try another brown ale category. Let's go for the American brown. And that one was definitely much more targeted. Like when I brewed that three bridges brown, I was like, let's the whole time I was, I was really shooting for American style brown and really trying to nail the balance of chocolate and bitterness and like so we used the Cascade hops in it at a decent rate to try to get that nice kind of citrusy uh, hop bitterness in there, but also the right amount of chocolate. So it really just combines into that perfect balance and also just have a crisp finish. We use Cal Ale for that too. So everything we do is definitely on the dry, drier, crisper side. And evidently that just tends to work well for uh, the judging <laughs> panels. You know, when you're talking about a, a judging panel made up of professional brewers, then you know, something that is dry and uh, well-structured like that is almost certainly going to appeal to them more than something that might be a little bit sweeter and a little more uh, uh, loose in the, you know, in the sip. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about this. You mentioned like a hazelnut flavor. Talk to me about building malt flavor because you don't have a, a ton of pieces to work with in this. You know, hops have to be pretty restrained. You know, you want it to be dry and crisp. Um, but you also want to build some heft and, and uh, you know, some kind of uh, substance, you know, in that body and, and flavor, um, you know, without having a whole bunch of levers to pull. So, how, you know, how, how do you go about doing that? How do you select base malt and then layer in some specialty malts to, to kind of build that malt body? Yeah, I mean, for us, I tend not to be too restrictive as far as, like, worrying about overdoing it on the malt side because I know – just the way our process works here, it's going to be dry. It's going to be crisp. Like just, I never have a problem with a beer being not dry enough. If anything, I'm like trying to build back and yeah. saying, let's get some yeah. body. Let's like try to do as much as we can to not have it be too dry. Um, so I throw in, I mean, we start with a nice layer of Maris Otter and just get that nice kind of base breadiness. Um, I'm a huge fan of Karamunic type three that is just like 
quickly become one of my favorite malts. Like, um, and I think that just has enough heft to get you some of those flavors. Um, and, but you can use it pretty judiciously and not worry about it being overpowering. And then just having the right, the right type of chocolate malt and the right balance of that, um, is important. One thing we've been really focusing on here that I hadn't really focused on a lot in the past is water chemistry. Uh, starting this place, I got super nerdy, geeky on just like water chemistry and just we, the water here is not ideal for brewing. So we had to get a RO unit and, uh, I didn't want to use hundred percent RO. So we blend a different ratio of carbon filtered city water with our reverse osmosis water for every single batch. And I think water chemistry is really what takes uh, a good brewer and makes them a great brewer for sure. Like mm-hmm. it took it, at least that's for my case. I think that uh, the beers I was clean beers I was making at Pizza Port were good, but really utilizing water chemistry is what really like ramped up, like and took me to the next level. So I think having and just kind of studying the the different types of water people are using in different parts of the world and historically what they're using and also just understanding what the water is going to do to the beer it really allows you to make like make maybe bitterness be a forefront or maybe have it be the maltiness come through and just just playing with that has been huge for us for sure how uh, you know how impactful and at what kind of you know blend levels or thresholds do you start seeing those significant differences then in water? You know, you mentioned that you're blending carbon filtered city water, which has a lot of bicarbonate and a lot of pretty high number of total dissolved solids back in with this RO water. Um, you know, but uh, like where in those, that kind of percentages of blends, do you start seeing very significant differences and what else are you then doing to, to kind of finish off some of these water profiles? Yeah. So, we go anywhere. Five percent difference, ten percent difference. Like you know, how impactful really? You know, where, yeah. where are those threshold points? I mean, we're not hitting the one percent mark on accuracy. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. it's like I the way I do it is like as accurate as it can be sure. with the the system we have. So I would say as long as I'm getting within a five percent range on what I'm targeting, I'm sure it's good enough. Uh, but we're going anywhere from like ninety percent RO, ten percent city water on like a pilsner. Um, to zero percent RO, a hundred percent city water for like a huge imperial stout, and that's to the point where I we don't even have to buffer with chalk or pickling lime or anything because there's so much bicarbonate in the water. It's just handling that roasted malt fine. Sure. Um, and then everywhere in between, like a brown ale might be fifty fifty. I would say our average beer, if I was just going to pick one blend, is eighty five percent RO, fifteen percent city water. That's kind of the that's probably what's getting me closest to like what what we're brewing with down in down in Southern California. I would say probably. Sure. Are there any other additions then that you make to that? Yeah. So we take that and then add. Usually it's just three. It's a uh, gypsum, calcium chloride, lactic acid, and uh, not always lactic acid if we're doing darker beers because you don't need to acidify. Mm, but right. uh, usually it's just a, a blend of those three. Um, pickling lime sometime if we're doing like a mega stout. Um, just to, to buffer on the pH side. You know, you are also paying attention to the total amount of, uh, you know, total dissolved solids in this water. I don't, yeah, I don't actually go and test it. It's all, I use a brew and water. Sure. Which is a pretty popular uh, program that is awesome. And, and the, the book water, um, 
that the Brewers Association put out. Right. And, uh, yeah, that one is definitely helpful too. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of it is starting with the science, but finishing with, uh, the, the actual experience and flavor and trial and error. So we, I like start with the program and, and start with the ideal elements. But after I start brewing a few batches, it becomes more trial and error and becomes more what what does this does this need more does this need less how is this the last batch was it too hoppy was it not hoppy enough was it too acidic um did the ph turn out right on this mash and i look at my notes eventually more often than the program once i start brewing beers over and over again because really you can compute something all you want but the reality of it is it does it taste good or not right and, and how do we go from here so. And you just tweak and tweak and tweak. Um, talk to me about the hops. You mentioned you're using, you know, Cascade hops and the American uh, brown ale. Um, you know, clearly you want to get a smooth integrated hop character to this. Uh, you know, are there any hot side techniques that you're using with uh, with hopping or is there a way that you're selecting some of these Cascade? Uh, I mean, for the brown ale, not necessarily because it's you're kind of you're looking just for bitterness and yeah. some whirlpool hop edition, and uh, there's not like whirlpool hop edition in your brown ale. Oh yeah, for sure. I I think we whirlpool hop edition almost every single beer <laughs> that we do. I don't know yeah. that I don't put like it's just it's just something that Why? I got accustomed to doing. I think because there is bitterness that you're getting from the whirlpool. Uh, but you're also just getting some flavor pickup too that you're not necessarily getting if you're at, you're just boiling the hops for 90 minutes, you know. Um, right. We also do a 90 minute boil on every beer that we do too. Um, Why? I, I, I we really like clear beer, and I think having that like just really vigorous long boil really helps the clarity and just getting all those proteins out of solution. Uh, you're boiling off a lot of. Um, other things that you don't, don't necessarily want in there, DMS, precursors, stuff like that. Um, I've never seen any negative effects from boiling longer. So I, it just has worked. It's kind of one of those things where it's more of just one of those things I picked up along the way, like tricks of the trade, than necessarily exact scientific reason why I'm doing that. You just yeah. decided to make your brew day longer. and uh, There's yeah. always stuff to do. So having a little <laughs> bit extra time actually can sometimes help. When you're, micro, when, you're, when you're having meetings and you're ordering ingredients and people are walking in the door and giving tours, like maybe that extra half hour actually helps you get, get, get things done and not be a stressed out on time so fair enough how would you uh how do you split up your hops between uh earlier hot side editions and whirlpool uh it depends For general it dep percentage kind yeah, of yeah it depends on the beer i mean i have a an ibu calculator that a friend let me use that we i just kind of uh put the efficient the efficiency that i think i'm going to get based on that edition and how much ibu we're going to get and usually it's kind of split up pretty evenly across the board like i probably get pretty equal amounts of ibu from first edition middle edition and whirlpool typically um a lot of the ipas these days we are definitely going heavier on the whirlpool even on the ibu uh pickup yeah. depending on the beer if i want to make like a really really approachable ipa that's maybe going to appeal to some of the people that don't really like bitterness as much in their ipas we'll probably we'll yeah, put a very small amount and boil and 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 a huge whirlpool edition and then huge dry hop edition. 
Um, also doing uh, what a lot of people are doing these days, cooling down the Whirlpool yeah. a little bit before adding the Whirlpool hops. So you're really just kind of maximizing flavor and aroma and not extracting too much bitterness out of how that. Much, how much do you uh, cool it down before you... I don't go too crazy. Usually I'm shooting for between 190 and 200 on like the hoppy beers. And uh, I don't put it through our heat exchanger either. I'll just actually uh, add cold water, cold uh, RO water yeah. to the to top up in order to get that cooling down. So it's interesting that you are whirlpool hopping your brown ale. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, even in the style guidelines for American brown ale, they say that dry hopping is actually common for that style, yeah. which I've, I think that would go a little too far for the beer for, at least for our beer. I'm sure it could right. work if I, I want to make it work. But I, at that point after making it, I tried it in the fermenter. I'm like, does this need dry hop? And I'm like, I don't think so. Like a brown ale, even an American brown ale only needs to be so hoppy. <laughs> so, but you, but the style guidelines clearly say like, uh, there needs to be some hop character there. So I think in order to get hop character and not just bitterness, you gotta, gotta add some whirlpool. Then when you, uh, when you get into fermentation on this, uh, how do you handle fermentation on the brown ales? You mentioned you're just using Chico. Yeah, just, we are, we are still struggling through a pan, like getting out of the pandemic. So we're not like out there like spending tons of money buying all these fancy yeast strains. So we, we basically have two yeast strains that we use in house. We have a lager strain and nail strain. Um, and we pretty much make all of our beers with those two strains because it just maximizes the sure. financial efficiency of the brewery. So, um, yeah, we do a pretty standard fermentation. We're not, I'm not looking for a ton of yeast, uh, byproduct flavors in these beers we're, we're looking for the malt and the water and the hops to do their thing um and Calil just is a, a workhorse and it just does what we need it to do and it does it does a great beer and kind of gets out of the way and keep uh, it in, in normal fermentation temperature ranges yeah, for the yeast yeah and, just everything's pretty standard when it comes to most of our fermentations on the ale on the yeah. cal ale side yeah the no dry hopping what do you how do you then finish and uh you know polish the beer up at the at the very end clearly if you're trying to you know appeal to a, a, a i shouldn't say that you're only trying to appeal to judges in a competition because also yeah. it needs to sell and appeal to an audience right here in your tap room um but you want a pretty beer and then it should be pretty if it's going to stand out in a competition or or be poured in a glass here yeah so we uh, send everything to a, a bright tank. We have a bunch of unjacketed bright tanks in a coal box and uh, force carbonate in there. And we add biofine. We biofine most of our beers. We don't do any filtration other than that. I find that uh, just allowing the beer to sit in the bright tank for a period of time and then uh, usually pulling off the side port first. We're not in a rush to like crank out beer through our bright tanks at least at this point so it can sit in there we can pull off the side port for the first few kegs and by the time a week or two have gone by then we could we could drain the tank uh, from the bottom and that has worked fine for us so far i'm not a huge proponent of filtration especially on like a in the, the pub type scenario right i just don't find it super necessary because a we're not in like a huge rush to produce massive amounts of beer so it can sit a little longer and I always just had this impression like there's just too much possible chance for oxygen pickup. And if there's one thing I'm paranoid about when it comes to making beer, it's oxygen pickup. That's on the sour beer side and the clean beer side. I right. feel like that's like the one 
Like if you can minimize oxygen at every single stage, that's going to be huge for flavor quality, for stability, for longevity. Yeah. So that's anything I can do to prevent oxidation. We're going to do. If you were thinking about the, both of these brown ales, what do you think are the pieces as judges are judging them that set them apart? You know, like these are well-trod categories styles that everybody's you know familiar with and has has been with you know, decade for decades and decades um standing out in something like that it's not something you're going to stand out from with the newest flashiest hop or the perfect hop combination you know or the yeast that's creating you know uh, free thiols that uh, you know create a very unique flavor to it. You know, it, it's not operating in any of those kinds of ways. It's, uh, you know, what do you think, uh, you know, is that differentiator for your brown ales and something and that thing that kind of makes them stand out amongst, you know, a crowd with other, other brown ales? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, with the Pine Mountain, at first, I like I said, I kind of just threw that in there and just didn't necessarily think it was the perfect English brown ale of all time. Yeah, it's, it's just a blend of a lot of different things that you have to think about. I wouldn't say I could pinpoint it on one thing. Um, definitely just balance and drinkability. So, And that comes to wa- down to water chemistry, I think. So yeah. having the right water chemistry. Um having a beer that's bold enough to stand out but not so bold that it's not to style for sure helps um so the english brown ale or sorry the american brown ale has like a decent amount of bitterness and a decent amount of chocolate i mean it's a bold beer but it's definitely still to style so having being able to stand out a little bit in that realm and then uh just making sure you're packaging it right and yeah minimizing like just making sure it lasts because right it's got to uh the beer is only fresh for so long and like we do turn over a good amount of beer, but I mean, we're sending a competition. It sits in a bottle for at least three months and we're not necessarily making brown ale every month, you know, so it's got to be able to hold up for an extended period of time and still taste like it did when you first released it. So. Are there uh, any tools? I mean, you mentioned oxygen obviously is the, the biggest one and that's the thing you want to eliminate that in your process in order to, to make it stand up or is there something to other ingredient choice or, uh, other process around this that you find adds to that longevity? Uh, making sure it stays cold for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so luckily for the competition side, the central coast brewers guild always gets a refrigerated truck that we can like it. The beer always stays cold the yeah. entire time. It's, it's being held at a certain brewery and then transported over to the competition. Um, yeah, we, with our self-distribution around locally, don't have to worry too much about it because we can just go straight from our coal box to someone else's. Sure. That's important. And then, uh, yeah, working with our distributor to make sure that they're taking care of it too. Just, um, yeah, making sure it stays cold is, is huge. And then auction pickup. I mean, that's, that's kind of the two big ones, honestly. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I love that we've been able to talk about brown ale because, like I said, it's something that I don't think we've ever really talked about significantly here on the podcast. But I do want to talk about sour beer because uh, 
I think you've developed some very innovative processes uh, in that scope of your work at, uh, I, you know, going back to Lost Abbey and then Beechwood Blendery. Uh, and I want to dig in on, on some of that. You also, uh, through Beechwood, have proved out that you can make spontaneously fermented beer even in a very warm climate if you approach it, uh, you know, with, an, with a strategy like you have. I want to talk about all of those things, but first, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brewhouse to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brewhouses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. So let's talk a little bit about sour beer. It's not a big part of what you do here at Wild Fields, but uh, it's certainly something that you love and have a passion for. You've got some smaller projects going on here, you know, still because you couldn't give it up completely. But talk to me about, uh, you know, about getting into that space and trying to build out a program at Beachwood Blendery uh, and make spontaneous beer in the greater metropolitan Los Angeles area, an area that is not known for the cold temperatures of the Zen Valley, um, that does not, you know, get into the the kind of uh, historical temperature ranges that, uh, you know, some have insisted are necessary for spontaneous fermentation and Lambic style beer. Um, and you all figured out how to not just do that, but do it at an incredibly flavorful level, um, making some of the most interesting uh, American spontaneous beers that, that we've tasted. Talk to me about uh, building that and uh, how you all went about making fantastic beer in a place that most might have thought you couldn't do it. Yeah, for sure. Um, first off, I will mention that, that when I was at Blendry, I would say, uh, like a pretty small percentage of the beer we made was actually 100% spontaneous. It was about probably about 10% of the project. Okay. The majority of the project was just focused on the end goal, which was like making flavors and aromas that were comparable to the stuff the Belgians were doing. And right. that was going to be any way that we could, any process we could. And so starting there, uh, most of the beer is like a, a house culture that we propagated through the barrels. And then we knew the spontaneous part was going to be a wild card. It was going to take a long time to figure out and kind of piece together. So that was always kind of a smaller piece that was like slowly growing as we were dialing it in. Um, and I think what it comes down to is the fact that Beachwood and Gabe and Julian allowed me to take lots of risks. Like it was a risky endeavor. It wasn't the kind of brewery you start from scratch as just a, like the first thing you do and you're putting all your eggs in this basket. I mean, it, we were able to do that at the blendery because we had Beechwood back the rest of the Beechwood backing us up, you know, like, um, and yeah, the, the Beechwood wasn't going to live or die on the success of the Beechwood blendery. Exactly. It was very much an R and D project that, uh, yeah, it, it allowed us to take some risks and, um, and be able to dump a little, some beer down the drain if we needed to. And that sure. was definitely part of the learning process, especially on the spontaneous side. The first batch of spontaneous beer uh, that we ever did, just going for it, was the entire batch got super enterobacteria. It smelled like rotten cabbage. And immediately we knew that that batch was not going to work. So yeah, we were yeah. back to the drawing board on like, okay, it's going to take a little bit more than just buying a cool ship to make spontaneous beer in Long Beach. So... um. Yeah, the first year was definitely pretty rough because developing a house culture 
that's going to do what you want it to do or figuring out the spontaneous. It's just not, it wasn't an, a thing that was well known. It wasn't like something that was, everyone was doing or well documented right. in the process. So we kind of had to pave our way and like figure out what we're going to do. So we, the main thing we did was just kind of threw everything we could at it. So any, t any way I could get a new culture, I would try to throw it in the mix and see, kind of see what worked and what didn't. So like growing up bottled rigs, buying all the different strains from every yeast lab we could get, finding like home brewers that had like had really good sour beer strains that they wanted to like pitch in and kind of be part of the process and uh, and just like anything we could to try to figure it out. And I think over time we just like kind of found what worked and what didn't. And pretty soon we had barrels that were tasting great and we just started propagating those. And it was just this evolving process through the through the barrels where the culture's alive in the barrel and you're you're handpicking the best. It's like natural selection, right? So this barrel evolved in a good way. So we're going to propagate that one. And so did this one. And you're just kind of pulling from all these barrels and propagating other barrels. And pretty soon you just start going down this path where just getting, it evolves into what you want it to be through that. Um, and then also just blending, lots and lots of blending and figuring out how to utilize different elements of different barrels to put together the pieces of the puzzle into the whole. Um, so you're sitting there on blending day and you're not necessarily tasting individual barrels that are exactly what you want or amazing, but if you know how to put them together, it can become greater than the the parts. You know, the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts. So that was also something we learned kind of how to do along the way. Sure, sure. Talk to me about optimizing. One of the things I was always impressed with is the kind of expression of funk in those beers. Um, talk to me about working with that culture to steer it in that direction to produce you know, because I think that's one piece that kind of distinguish your beer, that uh, having that blend, that the balance of funk and acidity, um, keeping the acidity light, keep you know, but, but also kind of amplifying that funky element to it is, you know, that's what made those stand out. Um, yeah. And nailing the funk is one of the biggest challenges I think a lot of American sour beer brewers face. Totally agree. And yeah, getting the funk, we realized pretty quickly at first, when I sat there, I thought, okay, turbid mash, that's what these beers are all about. That's what we're going to have to figure out. And quickly realized that you can, you don't necessarily need to do the perfect turbid mash. As long as you get a, a grain bill and a wort that's high in starches and it's not going to be super fermentable, like that puts you on the right path. What we realized was actually the most important piece was age tops. And that was just huge in the process of dialing in the funk and acidity because what happens is IBU is going to inhibit bacterial production. So your IBU level is basically going to control your acidity in a lot of ways. You also have to develop a culture that's going to be IBU tolerant. You can't just have some lactobacillus that you put in zero IBU wort and assume that that's going to end at the right acidity level. That's just going to probably get either zero acidity or way too much acidity. So we developed a culture of pediococcus, which is much more IBU tolerant. It's a little more restrained on the acidity and like slower moving. It doesn't have these wild swings that lactobacillus does. And we developed a strain of PDO that was IBU tolerant. And then basically dialing in the bitterness is what lets you dial in the funk and the acidity because you're getting a lot of the funk from the age tops and the interaction the Brett has with the age tops. And it's also controlling the, the acidity for you. So 
Uh, luckily, we were able to test a bunch of our bottles and Belgian bottles at a lab and kind of like start to see where the IBU, the perfect IBU level is. And uh, it's tricky because you never know exactly how much bitterness your aged hops are going to give you because they're aged. So right, they're not right. going to, it's hard. It's not something you can just calculate on paper like you can with the fresh hops where you got the exact alpha acid uh, percentage and you know that's what's going to kind of dictate the IBU. Um, How'd you go about doing it then? So luckily, right when I started Blendery, uh, Peter Hoey from BSG had done this experimental Lambic blend hop where he took a bunch of old bales that were about to get thrown away because they were just like too old. And he's like, wait, instead of just tossing these, why don't we age them some more, blend them up, pelletize them and make this like potentially useful hop pellet that people can use for lambic inspired beer or sour beer um so we that was like right when we started so we tried it out immediately realized that this was a good thing and basically bought all of it (laughs) (laughs) to some people's dismay i think oh no (laughs) (laughs) but at that point i immediately started uh, peter had left i think at uh pretty soon after that so i immediately started bugging jim wiggins about making more and like you got to get another batch going man we're gonna we're gonna need some more here pretty soon um, and they did, they made another batch of it. And, uh, yeah, so we actually didn't have to age our own hops. We didn't have to use whole hops. So we got this awesome pelletized version that has, in my opinion, worked great. And I know other, uh, hop producers have been doing it too. So I don't want to like just praise BSG as being the all, uh, only people doing this. I know that there's some other people out there that are, uh, experimenting, uh, with the same process and the same thing. Um, but yeah, finding the right and age. Not an issue then, you know, I mean, obviously whole, whole cone hops are the, the romantic choice of, mm-hmm. uh, of Lambic brewers. Um, you know, mechanically speaking, your pelletized hops didn't uh, ruin everything. No, well, the, the beauty of it, they were aged whole hops all the way up until pelletized. And like, yeah. so it's not like we, they aged pellets. You can't really age pellets. I wouldn't right. suggest doing that. <laughs> We've tried it, um, at blendery. Just, we did a bunch of different experiments with everything and the aging pellets didn't really work. Um, but having just not enough oxygen, uh, interaction. Yeah. The, just the bitterness just, uh, held up too well right. in the pellets. Yeah. And you don't get really enough, enough of that, uh, degradation. Um, but yeah, it's just much easier using pellets from a brewery efficiency standpoint. And just um, the fact that these worked out well kind of took one thing, one big process off the plate for us. And sure. we were able to kind of utilize that. I love watching various brewer, uh, sour beer brewers, uh, a hop aging programs and have walked out to the the barn, uh, you know, and climbed up uh, with Jeff, the Jester King, and uh, shaking out some of the bags that they're aging outdoors up in their, their little barn. And uh, Matt Tarpia, the veil, has a really cool multi-layered system where they just kind of toss and rotate, uh, you know, through and have a kind of average age then, uh, you know, of hops that gets older, but almost like a Solera method of uh, adding new age tops in and blending them all in and uh, and then trying to turn them so that uh, everything gets exposed to air. That's I mean, fascinating, the links that folks are going to on that. I do think that is fun, and I, I definitely think that's a great thing to do if you have time and the energy and yeah. like uh yeah, you guys were starting without without having that stock and needed to yeah i mean we probably would be doing that if it wasn't for like uh bsg coming out with that product yeah um because you gotta you gotta get h hop somehow so and 
like I said, aging pellets wasn't the way to do it. So you got to, the thing about making funky sour beer is there's no one way to do it. And none of us are, are doing it the exact same way. And you really got to find your, what works for you. There's not one, it's not like making brown ale where there's kind of like one or just ale, like clean ales in general, where there's kind of like a pretty consistent process we're all doing. Like you got to find what works for your brewery, what works for you, what works for where you're at, what what things you have to your disposal and what you're looking for in your, your beer as well. Yeah. So then you develop this age hops are a key thing. You've got this culture and you go through this natural selection process with it where the barrels that produce the best tasting beers are ones that you then use to inoculate more barrels and ones that don't get pulled out and they don't get, you know, the culture, you know, is a evolutionary dead end at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, but those cultures also keep moving even as you're you know doing that. Like, you know, you can inoculate with this great culture and things, things can shift. How do you, how, once you got something that you were really happy with, how did you work to maintain that? I would say overall, it just, as long as you're picking from the, the barrels that were good, the barrels tend to still be good. Um, I will say one thing, if a barrel is tasting good, use it right away. Don't necessarily think, oh, we'll save this for two more years and use <laughs> it for this blend down the future because it's such a good barrel, it's only going to get better. I found that usually if a barrel is tasting good, that's when it, it's probably peaking. It's only going to get worse. And a barrel that might not be very good that you're going to use instead actually might be better in two years. So if you give that barrel that's not tasting good more time, you never know. That could actually end up being a great barrel. So uh, use the beer when it's good. And also part of the process uh, on top of the things that we already talked about was massively underpitching. Like we're talking like like uncomfortably underpitching. <laughs> Dangerously. Yeah. Yes. Like almost Fear not even inducing. fermenting. Like, oh wow, it's been eight days and there's like no sign of fermentation. Yeah. But that yeah. day nine and all of a sudden, oh, there he it goes. comes home every day. Like, oh my God, it hasn't pitched yet. <laughs> and but then, you, oh, but it pitched you, today, babe. You start getting comfortable with it over time. At first it was kind of nerve wracking. You're like, we got it. Like I know spon- spontaneous fermentation, how many cells are getting in there, right? Like you're doing the like the math in your head and you're like thinking how many actual cells of yeast could have got into a spontaneous batch of beer? So how can we mimic that in a more controlled way? And you have to just un- under you have to try to get as little cells in there as possible with still having it start fermenting. And I will say that every no matter what, as long as it starts fermenting, it always finishes out. I've never had a barrel stall once it starts fermenting. So um and reading all these books that other people had written, like the the Lambic book, I'm blanking on the art, uh, author of it, but they talk about in Belgium how when they they take like like take samples of readings off of barrels and like the fermentation takes months, six months, a year, you know, to really right. get that full fermentation. So if you put a huge pitch of yeast into a barrel, it's going to ferment a, in a week or two. So right, right. that's not the goal. Um, in terms of temperature, uh, you know, how did you, uh, I know you mentioned, uh, you've mentioned before that you all, uh, put temperature, uh, probes in at Cantillon to kind of measure temperature swings and see what kind of, uh, you know, arc those things took. Yeah. So we went out on a, a limb and, uh, Jean and Roy had visited the brewery right before we opened actually for Shelton Brothers Fest. And I don't know if we asked them then or another time, but Gabe just, Went out a limb and said, "Hey, can we throw some temperature recorders in your your cellar?" And he's like, "Yeah." So, 
we he threw two temperature recorders, one in the the main floor and one in the basement, and we had an entire year's worth of temperature data um, recorded from Cancion's barrel cellar. So uh, at Blendery, we're we're really going for lambic inspired beer, and that was the mission. I spent every day just making one beer, and that was the whole goal. So we put in some. Uh, temperature or we put in some uh air conditioning units and basically had to complete control of the barrel room temperature all year round and we kind of utilized the the data we had and kind of what we thought would work and just tried to and control the temperature in that building which i know not everyone necessarily has the opportunity to do and that's not what we're doing here at wild fields um, sure i do think that temperature plays an important role um Seeing the te- some of the t- the temperature swings at Cantillon weren't huge, and uh, it did get decently warm in the summer. And I, uh, after my experience, I don't think that temperature. I think you want some temperature swings because it's going to give certain organisms t- t- their time to shine based on their preferred temperature. Right. But I don't think you're necessarily going to ruin a beer from temperature alone. So you don't want it to get overly warm. You don't want it to get above 80 degrees for like a super extended period of time. But if you can not leave that barrel, if you leave that barrel alone and not bother it, if you that barrel can just sit and not be moved and be topped up once, it'll probably be fine. I think the main thing people do is they move their barrels too much and they taste their barrels too much and they bug them too much and barrels just want to be left alone. They just, <laughs> yeah. And like Ryan Fields. Yeah, like me. Because <laughs> um, your your biggest enemy is oxygen. And right. I said that before, like I just, oxygen is not your friend. And when you try, taste your barrel, some oxygen is going to be in there. When you move the barrel, it's splashing around. You're disturbing the pellicle. And um, that's the biggest issue, I think, uh, is because oxygen is going to favor the production of acetic acid because there's always acetobacter in there. Whether And the whether or not it produces acetic acid is mainly based on how much oxygen is in there. So you add a bunch of oxygen into your barrel, acetobacter is going to be happy. It's going to make a bunch of acetic acid. That acetic acid is going to get turned into ethyl acetate, and you're going to end up with nail polish remover and vinegar. And we all, no one wants to drink that. No. no one. I mean, some people do, I guess. but uh, Some people do. <laughs> we don't like to drink that. <laughs> we don't drink it. <laughs> We dump it. You also did a bunch of lab work uh, to understand what organisms were working and doing the the kind of fermentation and flavor creation work in these beers. Talk to me a little bit about taking that kind of analytical approach to to try to understand what was doing what and when. Yeah. So first off, I will say um, if you do have a Brewers Association membership, you can access. I did a CBC seminar all about just the data that we collected and all about yeah. the kind of the things I learned at Beechwood. And uh, so that's available on the Brewers Association website. And there's also a- That was a, 2019 CBC, right? In uh, 2018. Denver? 2018. No, 2019? 2018. 2018. No, 2019. It was 2019. Yep. It's right before we opened. Okay. Yeah, 2019. And uh, there is also a little paper I wrote up on that floating around the internet somewhere if you type in Ryan Fields, Beecher Blendery, Lambic Inspired, it might pop up. So yeah, we in order to kind of meet this goal of what we were we were trying to use every avenue possible. And a friend of mine, Chris Wolowski, who was kind of a scientist slash brewer, he like 
flip-flop back and forth between the two fields, was at the time a scientist and working at this lab who was trying to kind of break into other fields and uh, maybe get some like good publicity. And they're like, uh, gave us some, some analytical data, some CRISPR genetic analysis on some of our barrels. It's because we didn't know exactly what organisms had survived all of this evolution. Right. So we were just like throwing everything we had in these barrels and like whatever survived, survived, but like what actually was doing the work, you know? So uh, it was pretty, it was mainly justification, I think, because um, what we got back was pediococcus was mm. the main bacteria, which is what we wanted and what we assumed was happening based on just ropiness developing, which is the a function of PDO and also just the, the flavor and uh, lots of different types of Britannomyces. Um, and there were some other little interesting tidbits in there, but for the most part, it was just really validation that what we had developed was what we thought we had developed. And you can't just look that necessarily look at that under a microscope unless you're like very trained lab person who can look at bacteria and know what it right. is. <laughs> and anything else to this uh, sour beer production process that you think, uh, you know, had set that program apart? I mean, I think if you want to really just dedicating the time to it, you know, like having the ability to just dedicate the time was what really took that to the next level it's hard to really develop that as like just a little thing on the side you know or or just accidentally doing it like oh this beer didn't turn out let's throw it in a barrel right and or just like let's start to see what happened like it's deep if you if you want intentionality there yeah if you want to make good sour beer you're gonna have to spend some time focusing on it sure it can't just be a, a afterthought I would say. And we have another episode where we actually talked to Harrison McCabe right after you had, uh, were leaving, you know, Beachwood. And, uh, we also talk more about that process with him. Uh, I think it's fascinating. And I, again, what you guys have, were able to do there and now they continue to do is, uh, you know, still some of the, the best American sour beer that we've tasted. Yeah, Let's, we, I will say we love Harrison. And thank you, Harrison. You're doing a great job. Thank you, Harrison. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just saw him this weekend. So uh, let's let's again talk about what we teased at the the very top, and that's uh, your approach to competition. Um, <laughs> you know, it's an interesting one. You you know, you're, like many brewers, find getting the recognition. Um, you know, something like this can change the arc of the brewery's progress that uh, changes the way that other brewers look at you, changes festivals you get invited to, it changes the way that your local customers even look at you, that, uh, you know, they might have liked your beer before, but now they feel really good about their uh, their choices of uh, patronizing you because they've had this external validation for it. And so, you know, it's not just an ego boost. There are very palpable benefits to you know the way that everyone from inside the industry and customers then view you with these kinds of things um and you take a very analytical approach to entering competitions talk to me talk to me about that approach and philosophy and then the you know some of the strategy involved yeah i mean we definitely enjoy doing the competitions and it's fun and i love it but it it doesn't justify the bill of entering them to do it just for fun like, right right if you're not winning, it's kind of hard to justify the the cost, especially as a new brewery like us. So I, we go into it with the idea that we want to win an award and it doesn't necessarily matter what category it is. Like we just, we need to get on the board and I definitely come into it from a very analytical 
try to be unbiased about what beers I want to win or what my favorite beer is or what the customer's favorite beer is. Everyone's like, oh, you should enter this beer because it's my favorite and it's the best in the world. I'm like, I appreciate that. I love you for it. But I sit down and I'm like, what beer is going to win? Like, what, He doesn't what? sit down. He hobbit holes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it comes down to statistics, I think, a lot. It's a, it's a game of statistics because there's a lot of different factors as far as many different palettes, of many different judges and many and your beer is being tasted in different order uh, and it, a lot depends on that beer that you tasted right before then or after it just when it comes down to all these factors i think it comes down a lot to statistics so we look at how many entries are in a category we look at just how close our beer is to style because at the end of the day it's more about whether the beer is to style whether or not the beer is, is like great beer or not and then just or if, it's, I, if it doesn't fit in that style, then it becomes an immediate knockout, you know, from those yeah. judges. And so it's got to stay in the game to even have a chance to win. And a lot of styles are very open ended too. like we were talking about American IPA, like how many different opinions are there about what that style even is or experimental, all these experimental styles. Like what does that judge think of this historical or experimental style? Whereas there are some a lot of latitude to the judges uh, interpretation yeah. And you don't want you're, you don't want to play with that risk. Yeah. So there's some beers that are a little more clean and dry, where it's like a, a Scottish ale. Like how many different variations can there be, and how much like can you really vary off of that that kind of pretty set style guideline? Because it's a very it's a it's more of a like that historical beer where it's not as much of something that's evolving necessarily in real time. It's like this is a beer from the past that kind of has its place already set. So I think we lean more toward those styles. I mean. This is not something that I just like came up with myself to. I've been in the business of winning medals just based on the breweries that I worked for. So sure, it was kind of sure. part of the culture since I I got like Pete's Port and Lost Abbey yeah. and Beachwood all have pretty aggressive uh, competition entry, uh, you know. Exactly. Traditions. So I got to go on to on that stage pretty early on in my career and get that kind of adrenaline rush. And honestly, it's kind of, a lot of it's just tra- chasing that adrenaline high, that dopamine high of winning. And it's, it's yeah, a little bit of a, a lot of, a lot of the motivation is actually kind of for that. You for that look big real good up there. Dopamine babe. dump. Because <laughs> <laughs> it does feel good to win. Um, but it also does help, help it helps the business. And I, I've seen this at the breweries I worked at, how winning medals and getting up there does help you promote your business and it helps the retailer justify buying your beer and it helps them push your beer to consumers and it helps in a lot of ways. So if you can figure out the pieces and can figure out how to do it, it is it is worth it. But um, yeah, it takes it takes some time and energy. It takes sitting down and really kind of figuring out. And I, I learned a lot of these things from the places I worked, how to package perfectly like we dedicate a lot of time to packaging because a lot of people say it's just as much a packaging competition as it is a brewing competition because sure, sure. the beer has to sit in a bottle for close to three months before it gets tasted. Um, so if that beer is oxidized at all uh, or in any kind of like packaging flaw at all, it's going to be pretty quickly detected by these judges who spend all of their time at their real jobs like doing that, like analyzing right, off flavors right. and, and tasting beer. So. Um, 
Packaging is huge. We dedicate a lot of time. We dedicate a, pretty much a whole day to just packaging the beer as late as possible. Get it like to that drop-off point at the last second. And eliminating oxygen is something that starts in the tank. You know, it's not just. I mean, that's that's a big piece of the the packaging puzzle. Yeah. We we use a lot of CO two in yeah. the bright tanks. We use a lot of CO two. What much more CO two in packaging are. Uh, GABF and World Beer Cup beers than we do our <laughs> any other beer. Yeah. So it takes it takes a lot of time. We t- we spend a lot of time purging each individual bottle and making right. sure it's it's going to be held up super well. Now you mentioned to me before that uh, um, you know to get an idea about what beers have won in the past, you you use even Untapped to see how people describe beers, so that you can try to glean some insight in, in certain categories that you're thinking about entering about what, what, you know, flavors yeah. are impactful to judges. Yeah. I mean, it, you never really can know exactly what a judge is looking for, but you can kind of look at trends and be like, okay, this beer has won a bunch in this category. Sure, sure. And why is that? Or like this style isn't like something that's made a lot, but it seems like the beers that are doing this are the ones that are winning. Like for instance, the cream ale category just noticed a trend or like Mexican lagers are oftentimes winning in the cream ale category. I thought we make a really good Mexican lager. It's one of the most popular beers. So that one has, has definitely done well for us in competition. It won uh, gold at this world beer cup right. and also had made it to the medal round uh, before at GABF for us. So it was uh, just kind of noticing those trends and, uh, yeah, just being kind of aware of that. I mean, it's just, I just like geeking on that stuff. I'm a number, I'm a numbers guy. I'm a math geek. I, yeah, I, yeah. And I had it. So I, I just like crunching numbers in weird ways like that. Not necessarily like super useful ways, like organizing the books and QuickBooks <laughs> right, or anything. Right, right. But if it, if it comes down to like, <laughs> but if it comes down to beer and metals, Ryan is in. It makes yeah. plenty of sense to me. I mean, if you think about competition entries as a as a marketing expense, because that's exactly what it is. That's you, what you, we attribute it to. Right. Yeah. You know, you want to get something for that. Mm-hmm. You know, you want it, and it can't, it, you know, a hope and a prayer isn't a great way to go into it. Like, you know, put out a bad social media ad campaign and that doesn't return anything. Like, why would you even spend that money? You wouldn't do it if you had bad creative, of, yeah. you know, <laughs> in an ad. And so it's the same kind of approach to this. Why enter in something where you have a low probability of winning or where there's a lot of variability in the way that a category is judged? Something like, you know, barrel-aged stout. You see the diff- how the, you can see the impact of the who those judges are from year to year and who which beers win change based on who the judges are and what those preferences are like and and that's okay. You know, that's natural. Mm-hmm. But that creates more variability and risk for you as a brewer if your intention is to get some value out of entering that category. Yeah. And, I, and I will say too, we don't go in expecting four gold medals. Like we, <laughs> Hell no, we, we did not. We go into <laughs> right, right. every competition praying and hoping There's for one, one medal. I don't care what color it is. We right, want one. Right. one. And once you get that one, you're like, right, and you just right. can lead back and you're like, we did it. We at least got one and the rest are bonuses because... Um, just getting that one is all that kind of really makes, makes the difference, I think. And, uh, just personally from like, and, uh, all the energy put in and you taught me that my first competition with him was world beer cup and he had taken over 
for Pizzaport. Noah at Pizzaport San Clemente. And I remember sitting there and like the porter placed. Probably first, yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God, you're going to like win more medals. And he was like, do you know I just won a medal? Like, that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And he's like, we're good now. I was like, oh, oh, we're good. Okay, we're good. Yeah. We're good. I talk myself down before every competition. I'm like, <laughs> sure, sure. I am ready to get shut out. Because I mean, I've been shut out plenty, <laughs> yes. of, plenty of right, times. Right. And like, you don't want to get down on yourself. It's at the end of the day, like, it's not end all be all what's going to make your beer good or not. You know, it's a good advertising tool. It's fun to compete with your friends and I love doing it. But every competition I go in thinking, you know what, I'm going to be totally happy and okay if we don't win anything. Because if you don't, then you're just going to beat yourself up and you're going to be miserable. Because you're so going to get lucky. shut out. I don't make the beer myself. And my favorite part is our friends winning. So I go with that mentality. Like, if our friends win, we are winning. And all is good. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly, even though you don't expect it, and you obviously can't go in thinking you're going to win stuff because you know there, there, the odds are always against you. I think what like three percent of entries end up with a medal, you know, in any giveaway. Like it's not great odds to bet on. Um, but I love how you work to reduce, you know, to improve the chances, improve your odds, and you know, yeah. going into this um, to make it worth going to all the effort that everyone does go to when they uh they create these things well that's interesting thanks for sharing that insight into uh you know the the strategy four gold medals at world beer cup is absolutely crazy but now with more frequent world beer cup every year instead of every other year it's gonna be more opportunities uh for you to repeat yep I think that's a good place to bring this to a close. G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers since 1847. Stay up to date on the status of your shipment when you order from Old Orchard. Arrived is the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction and put SS Brewtex advances to work in your brew house. Your magazine subscription directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast each week and to go to places like here in Atascadero at Wild Fields where we can have podcasts in person. I love it. I love it. Go to beerandbring.com and click on the subscribe button to let us know that this content matters to you. Uh, Ryan and Jackie, if people want to learn more about Wild Fields or taste taste these, uh, you know, these brown ales, although I should say the one brown ale that you have in the tap room right now, you have to limit it to only half pours because there's so little of it left. And I swear this is the first time I've ever seen a brewery have to meter out the sale of its brown ale. It's an amazing <laughs> world that we live in today. Absolutely fascinating. Where do, where do they find you and where do they learn more about Wildfields? Uh, you can find out everything about us for the most part at wildfields.com we have a find our beer app or an online store where you can order direct from us and we'll ship it to you uh other than that we would love for you to follow us on wildfields brew house on instagram and facebook or come right here to the tap room oh. in Atascadero. Oh, yeah. You can come here too. Come find us. We're in Atascadero right off the 101 and 41 at 6907 El Camino Real in Atascadero, California. Right in between San Luis Obispo and Paso Robles. A fantastic right place to be. Lots of great beer being made in this area of the Central Coast now. And uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you all for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.